Are you looking for a church home or simply a weekly message that will revive your spirit? Each week, Pastor John Butler delivers applicable messages that will refuel your spiritual man and bring a new desire to your heart. Here's Pastor John Butler with this week's encouraging message. Malachi chapter 1. We'll read the first five verses today. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I want you to pay attention to this because this is the this is the whole crux of the message. I have loved you, says the Lord. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? This is Israel's response to God's statement. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and Esau have I hated and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, and Edom is the nation founded by Esau, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people under always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. But let me reemphasize to you, verse 2, the first thing out of God's mouth is, I have loved you. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, and we just ask that you would that you would anoint me today as your mouthpiece as I speak your word. I pray, God, that you would that you would empower it through your Holy Spirit to to penetrate into our hearts, penetrate, Lord, even the dividing of bone and marrow. Lord, show us not only our actions, but our attitudes and our the intents of our heart. I pray, God, that you would just sow this seed today into good soil, that we could that we could see it grow and bear fruit in our lives, that the people around us may eat and be filled. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Malachi is a short book. I'm not sure how much time you may have spent in it. It's very short, but it's a very powerful book. It is, again, the last book of the Old Testament. It's right before Matthew. And so you can just turn one page in your Bible and you move from Old Testament to New Testament, but understand that this word that God gave, this revelation that God gave to Malachi was the last word recorded in Scripture for 400 years. This is the last revelation of God in Israel for 400 years after Malachi. So you would think that the last thing that God said to these folks before before this silent period of 400 years would be pretty important. So I want us to look at it. In the next four weeks, we're going to sort of unpack what some of the, the, the messages are to us, what the takeaway is for us from this book of the Bible. Now, this book was written uh, to the exiles as they were returning from uh, to Israel from Babylon and from Nineveh. They had been carried off by the conquering kings of the uh, Assyrian and Babylonian empires and decades before. It had been, in some cases, 70 years or longer that they had been in captivity. And now some of those kings were allowing them to come back to Israel. And that's what they were doing. But they were, they were coming back and they were having to pick up the pieces of their broken lives. They were picking up their broken faith. They, they were picking up and trying to start all over again. See, there was a lot of building going on at this time and a lot of rebuilding had to happen. Rebuilding the walls of the cities that Nehemiah oversaw. Rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed that Ezra was trying to, to make happen. Rebuilding their homes. And God spoke to through the prophet Malachi to correct some of the errors that He saw in what they were doing. If they were going to be rebuilding 
then they might as well get it right. If you're going to rebuild, you might as well rebuild it right. And so Malachi doesn't really use this metaphor of building too much, but I think it's an appropriate one for us, and it's going to be the foundation of our study for the next four weeks. Malachi, uh, getting the house in order. Getting the house in order. Now some of you may be able to relate to the people of Israel in this in this passage of Scripture. Maybe you faced a situation or maybe multiple situations in your life that have left you scrambling to pick up the broken pieces as well. You Maybe you're trying to hold on to your weakened faith this morning. Well, if you are trying to rebuild, then doesn't it make sense to not just put it back the way it was, but to put it back the way it ought to be? So many times we're in such a hurry to get back to normal that we don't stop to realize that maybe it was normal that got us in the mess in the first place. And so if we're going to rebuild, let's make sure we build it back better than before. Let's let's make sure we get the house in order. Now this past February, after we started the year with prayer and fasting, I I laid out a plan for, for this year what I felt like God was leading us to at Covenant Life for 2013. And so if you recall, we talked about some things that we wanted to do in the community, specifically beginning to take care of widows and orphans. And and we've done that. We have begun doing that and we'll continue to. We talked about things we wanted to get done on this property next door and on these facilities here. And we've been working on that as well. We talked about some things that we want to do in you know three to five years or maybe even further down the road. And we're working on that and that'll all happen as the time is right. But I told you I felt like this year and year one was our year to get our house in order, to get things straight, to get things together, to look at all of our ministries and make sure that they're that they're built right. Make sure that if they need to expand, we'll expand. If we need to start some, we'll start some. But let's make sure that we have built this house correctly. Now in November, I plan to cast vision for 2014 and that'll be upon us before you know it, if you, if you can believe that. We're like, what, 10 or 12 weeks from... Christmas now? It's ridiculous. I know you're sweating, but we're just a few weeks from Christmas now. And, and, and so it's time to start thinking about, if you're into strategic thinking, it's time to start thinking about 2014 if you haven't already. And so we're going to talk about that at the appropriate time. But as we finish up this year one vision, I don't think it's an accident that God led me to this passage of Scripture. Because we have to ask ourselves, what kind of house is it that God wants us to build? There's a lot of churches that never stop to ask that question. We, I think that's an important question for us to ask because most people just repeat what they've always seen. They just do what they've always done without ever stopping to ask if this is the way God wanted us to build in the first place. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. What is it that He's looking for in a church that pleases Him? Because you can go to church growth seminars every week. If you want to, you you can visit the largest, most successful churches in the country who are doing the most cutting edge ministry and you can bring in the the big numbers and you can have great worship services. and, And I don't guess there's anything wrong with any of that. But at the end of the day, the only measure of success for a church, for a house of God, is whether or not we please God. Whether or not we were obedient to Him, it won't matter if you did it just like somebody else did it. The God's going to want to know, did you do it the way I told you to do it? And so this morning I want us to talk about the first of the things from Malachi that I believe God is speaking to us as we are trying to build His house. Now look, I am, I'm no, no builder. I'm no handyman at all. My best tool is a hammer. And that's only for demo. If you need me to, if you need somebody to drive straight nails, I'm not your guy. 
Okay, so I can tear stuff up. Fixing stuff's not really my deal. I'm not in the building business, but some of you guys are. Or some of you know some, something about it. So I'm no builder, but I do know this, that if you don't get the foundation right, the house is not going to be right. Is that correct? Some of you building kind of guys? Thank you. Okay, yeah, I got a thumbs up from a few people. That's good. So the foundation is what determines the structural integrity of the house. You can make it look like a million bucks. You can decorate it just like they tell you to do on HGTV. Okay, you can do that. You can spend as much money as you want to. But if the foundation of the house is not right, it's not going to stand for long. Because when the wind blows and when the rain falls and when life happens, a house that's built upon a faulty foundation is just not going to endure. So if we're going to build a house that God's going to be pleased with, what is it going to be built upon? Now, in the midst of all the building that they were doing in the book of Malachi, the word of the Lord comes to them. And what was the first thing out of his mouth? I read it three times. Verse 2, what's the first thing out of his mouth? I have loved you. I have loved you. Before he said anything else to them, before he corrected anything in their building plans, before he said anything else to them, he reminded them of his love. Now, why would he have to do that? I mean, if somebody loves you, don't, don't you know it? Don't you know it when somebody loves it? Don't you feel it when somebody loves you? Uh, not always. Not always. Sometimes love is tough. Sometimes love is difficult. Sometimes love is, is messy. It takes you through difficult places. Sometimes love is hard to feel. Can somebody who's been married more than a year and a half say Amen. Sometimes love's hard to feel. You know why? Because love's not a feeling. It, it may be accompanied by a feeling, or it may be accompanied by an emotion, but it is not an, a, an emotion. It is not a feeling. Love, at its essence, is a choice. It's a commitment. In the purest form of love, agape love, which is God's kind of love, is unconditional. It doesn't even have to be returned. It can be completely one-sided, completely unrequited. And the love is a covenant that cannot be broken as long as one of the parties is willing to carry it through. See, our human minds, we don't get that. We, we, don't, we can't understand that kind of love. We always expect something in return. I'm loving you, so you need to love me back. I'm putting myself out there, so you need to do the same for me. That's not the kind of love that God's talking about. The pure love, the kind that God has for us, is the kind of love that He expects His house to be built upon. It has no expectation attached. There's no strings. There's no escape clause. There's no expiration date on the love of God. The love that God has for us is unimaginable. It is inconceivable. It's inescapable. It's undeniable. It's greater than the love that a mother has for a child. And that's a mouthful. It's greater than that love. It's greater than the love that a soldier has for his duty or for her country. It's greater than that. It's a love that only comes from somebody like God. And you know what? There is nobody like God. The love of God is unique. So at the bottom of any plans for the house of God at Covenant Life, at, at like the foundation that's laid has got to be the love of God. How do we know that the foundation needs to be the love of God? Well, if it was the first thing out of God's mouth, 
to the people of Israel through Malachi, and because it forms the foundation of the Christian faith. Even in the most famous Scripture ever, John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It wasn't duty or obligation or pity or anything else that caused Jesus to step away from heaven to die for us, to lay His life down for us. It was His love. And then Jesus said something that some of us wish He had not said. He said the the, the top two commandments, the things you need to focus on, everything else hinges on this, is first to love God, and then closely a close second is to love others. Love God, love others. Love is the foundation of the faith. And it's got to be the foundation of this house. But it's not just any love that we have to build upon. It's the love of God. So the love of God it is, is too vast for us to wrap our brains around. And certainly is too much for us to, to be able to talk about in any sort of uh, exhaustible way in, in 35 minutes. So, so what I want to do for you today is let's just point out a few things. There are four things from this passage in Malachi about the love of God that I want to, that I want to point out as well. And it matches up quite nicely with what Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. He said this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp. You're never going to understand it, but at least kind of try to get your hands around it to grasp how wide, they sing about this, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Of all the things that Paul could have prayed for the church at Ephesians, he said, what I really want for you is for you to be able to understand the love of of Christ. So before we can build a house of God's love, we have to understand it for ourselves. We have to walk in it ourselves. We, We have to have experienced ourselves. And that's my desire for you today as well. I want you to know that no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or failed to do, no matter what you've said or how many times you have pushed Him away, God loves you. And you know what? There's not a stinking thing you can do about it. He does not need you to love Him back. God does not have needs. You say, oh, well, God needs us to worship Him. No, He doesn't. God does not need you to do anything. He does not need you. He created you. He doesn't need anything. Everybody okay? (laughs) He does not need you to love Him. You need to love Him. Because you need His love and you need to experience that love. So here's the four attributes that I see in this passage that matches up with what what Paul said to the Ephesians. So what is the love of God like? First of all, it is wide enough to defend you. Wide enough. Paul said, "How I want you to know how wide the love of Christ is. Well, in Malachi, it helps us to understand that, but there's a few other Scriptures that speak to it as well. In Acts chapter 27, look at these three situations. First of all, in Acts, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them, they're on a ship, and he said, uh, guys, you should have taken my advice and not set sail from Crete. This is Paul's way of saying, I told you so. And then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Look at verse 22 and 23. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost 
Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the, of the God whose I am and whom I serve, that'll preach right there too, stood beside me, and look at verse 24, and said, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. God was defending them in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. Look at Daniel chapter 3, very famous passage of Scripture. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. This is the king of the Babylonian Empire. Leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? And they said, certainly, O king, which is really the only correct answer when a king asks you a question. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. God defended the three Hebrew boys in the midst of the, the kingdom of Babylon. And look for the last, the, the last scripture here is in Exodus chapter 8. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh, he, the king of Egypt. He says, if you don't let my people go, I'll send swarms of flies on you and your officials and your people and your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But look at verse 22. But on that day, I'll deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live, no swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. God defended His people, even in the midst of the plagues of Egypt. So what is what is the love of God like? Well, it's wide enough to defend you. If God will defend His people against the fierceness of nature in the Mediterranean Sea, and if God will defend His people against the tyranny of the Babylonian Empire, and if God will defend His people against the plagues in Egypt, then there is not a place you can go. There is not a foe that you can face. There's not a force that can come against you that God is not able and willing to meet it and defeat it because of His love for you. The people of Israel in Malachi were amazed to realize that God was the one keeping the Edomites defeated. He was the one fighting their battles. He was going beyond the borders of Israel, which is what they realized in verse 5, to protect them. Why did God do that? Because He loved them. It was the first thing offered as proof of His love. If Paul wants us to grasp the width of the love of Christ, then you can know that His love is wide enough to defend you. Secondly, it's long enough to be devoted to you. Long enough to be devoted to you. Look at Psalm 103 and 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him. From everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 7-10 through 10 said this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And look at verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, count what? Count the thoughts that God has towards you, then they would outnumber the grains of sand. Wow. When the Israelites were carried into captivity, a lot of them felt like they had, they had finally been abandoned by God. You ever felt like that? Uh, they had finally just, they deserved what they got, and some of them probably thought they had reached the extent of His love for them. But in the book of Malachi, God reassures them and reassures us 
of what He said in these Psalms, that His love is everlasting. His love is eternal. He is eternally devoted to you. He is madly in love with you. He says you're the apple of His eye. That's in, that's in Psalms. You are the apple of His eye. He, he never stops thinking about you. Max Lucado said that if God's got a refrigerator, your picture's on it. There is nowhere you can run that His love won't go with you. There's nowhere you can hide that His love can't find you. You can run if you want to, but He is the ultimate distance runner. You will eventually wear out and tire and God's just going to catch up with you. Because He will never stop pursuing you because His love is long enough to be devoted to you. How high is His love? It's high enough to deliver you. Look at Psalm 32, chapter verse 7. You are my hiding place, and you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Songs of deliverance. His love is high enough to deliver us. But who sings songs of deliverance? Look at Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God is with you and He is mighty to save. That's where the song comes from. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love and He will rejoice over you with singing. Who is singing over you? Who sings songs of deliverance? God. God's got a voice. And God doesn't just use His voice to speak. He uses His voice to sing. And He's singing songs of deliverance over you. People of Israel had been taken into captivity and now they had been delivered by the love of God. He let them go home out of His great love for them. Some of you have been taken captive by addictions, by thoughts, by poor decisions, by all kinds of things that, that may have gotten you off track from the, from the things of God. But God is telling you this morning that His love is high enough that He can see where you are and He can guide you home. His love is high enough that He can deliver you. And the fourth thing, Paul said you need to know how wide and how long and how high. The fourth thing is how deep is the love of God. It's deep enough to discipline you. Like, yep, add that to the list of things I wish wasn't in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent His rebuke because the Lord disciplines those He loves. As a father, the son He delights in. Job chapter 5, Job knew a thing or two about the, the discipline of God. He said, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. Revelation chapter 3, this is Jesus Himself who said, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So what's your response to that? Be earnest. That means be honest, be sincere, be serious about it, and repent. You know how to tell a really good parent? They discipline their kids. They don't beat them, but they discipline them. I don't care what technique you use. If you got a kid, your responsibility is to discipline that child. See, anybody can play with them. Any, anybody can play with a kid. Anybody can make them happy. Anybody can give them everything they want. There are some who can even provide for them. But if you really love them, you're going to discipline them. The children of Israel 
a new, uh, knew more than a thing or two about the discipline of God. That's what they just experienced. And he wanted them to know, I know that I disciplined you by allowing you to be taken into captivity. But know this, I did it not because I hated you, but because I loved you. And we've got to learn the same thing. If you've been disciplined by God, and all of us have at one point or the other, then we've got to understand that He's doing that because He loves us. How deep is the love of God? It's deep enough to discipline us when we need it. Now God's house has got to be built on this kind of foundation. This kind of foundation. God's kind of love. A love that's deep and high and wide and long. But it's not enough for us to experience the love of God for ourselves. We should, but we can't stop there. John chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Look at the next verse in in chapter 15. Jesus says again, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And verse 12 sums it up by saying, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Look, you don't need to be a Greek scholar to figure out what that means. You love people the way God loved you. How did He love you? He loved you wide. He loved you deep. He loved you high. He loved you long. We've got to do the same thing. Jesus said, you must love one another. If we've experienced the love of God, then we have to do the same thing for others. The Great Commission was given to us by Jesus Himself. And guess what? It's not optional. That whole go into all the world thing and make disciples, yeah, He was was serious about that. He was serious about it, not just for churches, but for individuals. The Great Commission says that we're we're to go in there and to do that, but the, the people that we have to do that to are the ones that most Christians have spent most of their lives trying to avoid. The people who need Jesus. We act like they've got some sort of virus, some sort of bacteria for which there is no antibiotic. Those are the people that need Jesus. Those are the people we've been sent to. Now when you read the Gospels, where did you find Jesus? Where was Jesus when you needed Him? He's with the sinners. He's with the sinners. He's hanging out with them, talking to them. He's eating with them. He's walking along the way with them. He is with the sinners. And and notice what He's doing. He's building a relationship with them. He's not condemning them. He's not. He didn't come up to them and say, Hey, my name's Jesus, I'm the Son of God, and you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Me. I mean, that's not His opening statement. What in the world? And, but we, we have that approach with people who don't believe it like we do it. Or we don't do, they don't do it like we do it. Or they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Don't, some of them don't even profess to, and we come to them like, we, like we're coming to, with a sword to beat them into the kingdom. You, you can't do that. That's not how that works. You build a relationship with people. Like, be nice. Building a house of love is not the easiest way to build a church. It's, it's not the cheapest way to build a church. Because love's not cheap. Love is expensive. That very love that Jesus had for all those sinners in just a few years cost Him His life. Love's not cheap. Love's not easy. Love's messy. See, you can build a church without building it on a foundation of love. And and let me tell you, it's easier that way. It's cheaper that way. You can build a church pretty easily. There there are ways and methods and things you can do. And and if you don't preach 
the stuff that makes people go, ooh, I don't think I want to hear that anymore, then that's, that's pretty good. People come for that kind of stuff. They come and they get all built up and uplifted and actually puffed up is what they get because it's not based on any, any truth of the Word. Everybody okay? Being Feeling good about things is okay as long as there's something good to be felt of, but it's not good for you to come in and go out feeling okay about your sin. As a matter of fact, if I'm trying to build this church, then I need to quit using that word. Sin is not in vogue anymore. You're not supposed to talk about those. Those are mistakes. Those are human fail, failures and frailties. Those are all kinds of... You, you say anything, just don't say sin. Okay, There are ways to get people to come to the church. But the, the problem with that is that God didn't call us to build a church. He called us to build the kingdom. He called us to be faithful. He called us to build it on the foundation that He laid for us. And it's going to cost us everything. Everything. Let me ask you this question. What's the opposite of love? I meant to tell you not to answer that out loud. Because I'm setting you up. Yeah, what's the opposite of love? And, and, and I would have said hate. It's the natural thing to say hate. And that's not a wrong answer. But, but I want you to understand this because this is something that God, an experience that I had with God this week as I was preparing for this message. I woke up, I think it was Friday night slash Saturday morning, something like that. Dead sleep. Dead sleep. I, went to, I went to bed Friday night and died. And I woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning, wide awake, clear as a bell. And what, what I was hearing in my spirit was the opposite of love is selfishness. The opposite of love is selfishness. Well, I mean, I, it might, I, I ate a lot of cheesecake before I went to bed. So that might have been what that was. So, you know, when you get one of those experiences, you never better check it out with the Word. So let's check that out with the Word and make sure that wasn't indigestion. Love means putting others first. Doesn't it? Yeah, selfishness is looking out for number one. Love... Love means that, that you get out of your comfort zone, go the extra mile for somebody. Selfishness bows and worships at the altar of convenience. Love is patient. And love is kind and forgiving. And it goes the extra mile. You can't do any of that if you're selfish. If we're going to be a church that impacts this community, if we're going to be a church that wins souls, if we're going to be a church that helps widows and orphans, if we're going to be a church that pleases God, then we've got to push past our prejudices, push past our convenience, push past our comfort level, past our economic and social and racial and denominational and political walls that we've built and learn to set aside our selfishness and actually love each other in the church and love each other outside the church as well and love the people of this community because they don't have to wear your banner. They don't have to wear your t-shirt. They don't even have to believe it the way you believe it. But we've got to learn to build connections with each other and to love one another and sometimes learn to agree to disagree. It's not always going to be pretty. It's not even always going to smell nice. Because there are some people that need to be loved that don't smell good. And don't look good. And don't act right. And get on your nerves. And they still have to be loved. It's not always going to fit our concept and our context of ministry. It's not ever going to please the religious people. Religious people get all tore up. They, they are okay with all of the other stuff, but when you really start loving people, religious people get tore up. Because Jesus had trouble with religious people. They're the only people that really had a problem with Jesus. 
because He loved people that they didn't think deserved His love. Who in here among us did deserve the love of God? But what, what we will not be popular by doing that. But what we will do is create a foundation upon which everything else can be built and it'll be solid and it'll be sure because it's on the sure foundation of the love of God. Do we need to preach the truth? Yes. But we've got to preach the truth in love. Do we need to worship God? Absolutely, we need to worship God. But we do it because of our love for Him, not out of some obligation. Do we need to give? Yes, we need to give generously. But not because the pastor is trying to make you feel guilty about it, but because you love God and want to be part of the kingdom and desire to please Him. Do we need to operate in the gifts of the Spirit? Absolutely. But they've got to be operated in love. Do you realize that Paul did not write 1 Corinthians chapter 13 so that it can be read in weddings? All of that, that love is patient, love is kind, long, long suffering, all that kind of stuff. That's all true and it applies to your, to your marriage and to your other relationships. But that's not what Paul was talking about. It is sandwiched, chapter 13 is sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14 because that's how math works. 12, 13, 14. If you look at 12 and 14, then you understand that he's, that's all one big conversation. He didn't stop in the middle. He didn't chase a rabbit in the middle of, of right at the end of chapter 12 and go, oh, let me talk about marriage and love and then pick up the same discussion on the other side. It's all about the gifts of the Spirit. And if you read it for yourself in context, you understand that Paul says you can have all the gifts in the world. You can have the best church in the world. You can have the largest or the hardest working or the biggest giving or anything else. But if you don't have love, Paul said in, in chapter 13, you're wasting your time. There's churches that are built on a lot of things. There's churches that are that emphasize staying positive and giving people hope. And I'm all for giving people hope because there's a lot of hopelessness in our world. Ain't nothing wrong with hope. Hope's good. There are people that build their churches on faith. They're faith churches and they believe in, in, in teaching people to believe and to speak their faith and, and all that kind of stuff. I got no problem with faith. I got no problem with believing and speaking the Word of God and, and all that kind of, all that's good in its, in its proper context. But if you build your church on faith, then you're settling for second best. If you build your church on hope, then you're settling for second best. How do I know that? What's the last verse of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? And there remains faith, hope, and love. These three. And then what does he say? But the greatest of these is love. If you build a church, if you build a life on anything other than the foundation of the love of God, then you've settled for second best. So let me bring this home. The, the love of God is what this house has got to be built upon. The real love of God. The love of God that, that loves people enough to discipline. That loves people enough to defend. That loves people enough to, to be devoted to them. That's the love of God and that's what we have to build it upon. But it's up to us to share that love. Because see, it's not enough for us to say, I can't just stand here and declare, okay, this church is built on love. God bless you. And just send you out. 
whether or not this church is built on love is not, is not so much dependent upon how much I declare the love of God from the pulpit, it's how much we live the love of God in our individual lives and relationships. And that only happens when we have a relationship with Him. So I'm going to ask you to stand, please. I'm going to ask you two questions and the first one's more important than the second one. The first one is this. Have you experienced the love of God for yourself? Do you have a relationship with God where you have understood and, and have experienced the love of God? Because if you don't, before you do anything else, you've got to do this. You've got to experience His love for, him, for, for yourself. You've got to understand that he, le- he lived and bled and died for you and for your sin. And you recognize that and you receive the benefits of the love that God had for you. That's the first and most important question. The second question is this. Are you sharing the love of God with the people that you encounter every day? The people that need it the most? When you see somebody who clearly does not know God, do you turn around and run the other way and find you some Christians and y'all have a little prayer meeting because you just can't stand to be around something that's not as holy as you are? Are we sharing the love of God with the people who need it the most? Does our love lead us to defend the defenseless? To be devoted to those who think they've gone too far? To preach deliverance to those whose lives are in a mess? Or to give loving discipline for those who have taken the wrong path? Is our love that strong? If it's not, then we need to ask God to help us with that. That's what His Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in your heart so that you can share it with people. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Pastor John Butler at Covenant Life Church in Bremen, Georgia. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.covenantlifebremen.org. We look forward to meeting you soon.